The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Impeachment, it's an avalanche. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, September 26, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. You are a Ukrainian army commander, and you have been trying for five years to fight back relentless Russian aggression into your country. You are on the front line in resisting Russia's march into the Western world. Your unit is trapped. You need air support. But your radio, to ask for that support, has been jammed by Russian technology. Your NATO ally, the U.S., has just what you need, something you expected to have by now, technology to get by the Russian jammers. But it hasn't arrived yet. Cut to Washington, D.C. This time, it's different. This time, Trump has admitted he asked a foreign country over and over again to help his campaign and that he temporarily held back promised military aid from that country after telling us at first, it doesn't matter what I discussed. We now know the Ukrainian leader asked Trump for more javelin missiles to use against Russia. I would like you to do us a favor, though, Trump told Ukraine's president, offering assistance in a Biden investigation from his attorney general, William Barr, and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, in an investigation into the man he saw as the biggest threat to his re-election, Joe Biden. We do a lot for you, said Trump, separate from his favor request, of course. He also asked Ukraine to see if it has an email server used by the Democratic National Committee in the 2016 campaign. He offered up help from Attorney General William Barr and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Trump was apparently asking that Ukraine look into the origins of the Russia investigation, apparently in search of a justification for pardoning former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, who's now in prison. As an extra incentive, Trump offered Ukrainian President Zelensky an invitation to the White House. Feel free to call, he told Zelensky. Everything Trump said and did here is illegal and unconstitutional. At the very least, it's a campaign finance violation negotiating for a thing of value from a foreign country. Even if we were to disregard the extortion here, just asking a foreign country for election help is an impeachable offense. On Tuesday, we got the official historical White House summary of a July 25th phone call between Trump and the president of Ukraine, and it backs up Trump's dual confessions. What little we already know is already more than enough to impeach Donald Trump, which is why House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week announced the start of a formal impeachment inquiry. She was left with no choice but to do the thing she has tried so hard to avoid. The law, the Constitution, and the judgment of history won the day, with a solid two-thirds of her caucus in favor of impeachment then, more than half the lawmakers in the House in favor now. Presidential harassment, Trump tweeted in all caps. In his panic over impeachment, he has changed his story at least three times as to why he held up that military aid to Ukraine. First, he said he didn't. Then he said it was to make sure Ukraine is not corrupt. Then he said it was because he didn't think other countries were paying their fair share. In truth, the European Union spends more on Ukraine's defense than does the U.S., and at least two of the countries each spend the same as the U.S., Japan and Germany. 
Trump was desperately grasping for justification for holding up that Ukrainian field commander whose men in our story were trapped without communication. In a phone call to Pelosi just before her announcement, Trump asked if there was something they could work out on the Ukraine thing. Tell your people to obey the law, she replied. Each of the six House committees would draw up articles of impeachment for the things they're investigating. His taxes, alleged bank fraud, his alleged campaign finance violations, his immigration policies, and more, including his obstruction of the Russia investigation, which, ironically, was about accepting foreign help in his first campaign. As the Constitution puts it, high crimes and misdemeanors. The conclusions and evidence found by five of the committees would then be turned over to the House Judiciary Committee, which is constitutionally the committee with the authority to propose impeachment to the full House. This won't take long, promises Pelosi. Much of this work has already been done. If there's a House vote to impeach, the question then goes to the Senate for a trial to decide whether Trump stays or goes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The president has made a string of miscalculations that made him a prime target for impeachment this past week. Miscalculation. He publicly confessed to pressuring Ukraine to investigate a political rival, and he publicly confessed to holding up money for Ukraine because he apparently sees nothing wrong with any of that. Miscalculation. He released the official White House summary of the phone call in which he repeatedly asked Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden because he wanted to at least appear to be transparent miscalculation. He thought his transparency might prevent impeachment and that if impeachment moved forward, it would fire up his base for the 2020 election. Miscalculation. He thought that last-minute chat with Pelosi would keep her from announcing his impeachment. Miscalculation. It isn't just about that July 25th phone call. The whistleblower complaint, now declassified, outlines how the White House kept some records of Trump's calls to foreign leaders on a separate computer. The whistleblower reportedly says that's what happened at first with this conversation. So the complaint is not just about that phone call, it's about how the White House has been handling these records of conversations between Trump and foreign leaders. And the whistleblower isn't the only witness, and in his or her complaint, he or she named the other witnesses. Those witnesses would include other concerned intelligence officials, Another key witness, likely, is former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who says he quit, in part, with deep concern about Rudy Giuliani's increasing role in national security matters. The phone call was just one of the incidents described to the intelligence community's inspector general by a whistleblower, someone in the White House, who was so alarmed by what they were seeing, they felt they had to report it even at their own peril. The inspector general deemed that complaint to be credible and urgent. And the IG was ready to obey the law that requires him to hand over that report to the intelligence committees of Congress the way it's always been done. That's when the director of national intelligence stepped in and overruled the inspector general, saying the complaint was not an intelligence matter based on advice from William Barr's Justice Department. It's a criminal matter, ruled Barr, meaning it was a matter not for those congressional intelligence committees, but for his own Justice Department. He took it from there and found no wrongdoing, deciding that an investigation by Ukraine was not a thing of value. 
Justice is part of the president's executive branch and is not supposed to be involved in an investigation of the executive branch. Democrats are demanding Barr recuse himself. William Barr's name and title are mentioned over and over again in Trump's phone call to the Ukrainian leader. William Barr was part of Trump's plan to get Ukrainian dirt on Joe Biden, and now Barr is the one who has investigated no further than to read the phone call summary that the rest of us have already read. Even though he's been a Trump supporter, that national intelligence director didn't want the whistleblower's complaint held back from Congress any more than did the inspector general who deemed the complaint credible. The Washington Post reports that Joseph McGuire threatened to resign rather than to be forced to stonewall Congress and that he intended to testify today as Congress had requested. McGuire is now denying that resignation threat publicly. He has, however, expressed his displeasure to the White House, and McGuire has made it clear he stands by his whistleblowers and his colleagues in the intelligence community and that he wanted to testify for Congress. In his pre-impeachment phone call with Pelosi, Trump said it wasn't his idea to hide the whistleblower report. Pelosi reminded Trump he could fix that by ordering his people to hand the official complaint over to the intel committees as the law requires. Subsequently, after some consideration, he did. While it's quite a lot to have a confession and an official summary of that call, Congress still hadn't heard from the whistleblower or seen their complaint. As of today, that has all changed. As if the breaking news and impeachment announcement hadn't already taken our collective breath away on Tuesday, then this happened. The Republican-led Senate voted 100-0 to to urge Trump to release to their security-cleared intelligence committees the whistleblower's written report. And then the Democratic-led House voted unanimously 421-0, to zero, calling on Trump to hand over the whistleblower complaint. And then we learned last night that the complaint had been turned over to the Intelligence Committees who had reviewed it in a secured room. One member of the House Intelligence Committee came out of that room calling the report broad far beyond that July 25th phone call. She also called the contents of the complaint explosive. We also now expect the whistleblower to testify for those committees, maybe as soon as tomorrow, certainly by next week, and again, surprisingly, with an okay from the White House. That July 25th phone call was one of at least eight times that Trump or his lawyer Rudy Giuliani had strongly suggested to Ukrainian officials that Joe and his son Hunter be investigated for Hunter's business ties to Ukraine while Joe was vice president. Of course I did, insisted Giuliani on CNN, 30 seconds after saying he didn't. It appears Vice President Mike Pence also aided in this effort to get Ukraine to investigate the Bidens, as did others. The pressure, we now know, had been applied starting in the spring and continuing through the summer, but this time the pressure on Ukraine seemed to include a condition. Giuliani and Trump had made their suggestions to Ukraine while holding back $391 million desperately needed dollars budgeted by Congress to help Ukraine defend itself from endless aggression by Russia. Vladimir Putin would have loved to have seen that money withheld. Putin had, after all, promoted the Trump campaign in 2016. But now Trump was focused on his 2020 re-election challenge, plus he has a grudge against Ukraine. The new Ukrainian president has resisted Trump's pressure where he could, trying to keep his friendly ties to the U.S. The new president of Ukraine is anti-Russian. 
But when Trump was informed of all this in May, he told his advisors that Ukrainian politicians are, quote, terrible people, adding, they're all corrupt and they tried to take me down. There's that grudge. Trump was talking about his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who's now doing time in a federal pen after secretly working for pro-Russian interests in Ukraine. We now know from Washington Post reporting that Trump told his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to hold off on the Ukraine payment one week before he picked up the phone to bend the ear of Ukraine's president about a bogus allegation against Joe Biden. The White House finally released that nearly $400 million payment on September 11th, after Trump's call to the Ukrainian leader. First the call, then the money. Nice country you got there, Ukraine. Be a shame if anything happened to it. I've got 400 million bucks here for you. Have you investigated Joe Biden yet? But Trump finally released the money because he was forced into it by Democrat Dick Durbin on the Senate Spending Committee known as Appropriations. Durbin threatened to hold up $5 billion in Pentagon funding unless that $400 million was released to Ukraine as Congress had ordered it to be. And Trump folded. But it appears Trump was using presidential powers to extort election influence from a foreign country. More correctly, it falls under the legal definition of bribery, and the Constitution allows the impeachment of a president engaged in, quote, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. This time, Trump wasn't just inviting foreign help or accepting foreign help. He was apparently using extortion to get foreign help. One way for Congress to find out is to call that National Intelligence Director to testify publicly to the House Judiciary Committee and to bring with him that whistleblower's complaint for a closed-door session with the Intelligence Committee. And that's what's happening today. That whistleblower complaint, now declassified, we know it tells of this intelligence agent's concern that Trump was using presidential powers for personal gain and that the White House was engaged in a cover-up of that abuse. But flying in the face of both law and history... Trump's acting intelligence director had refused to cooperate at first, saying he was just following legal advice and the law as Trump's Justice Department sees it under the leadership of William Barr. The news as we have known it these past three years, life as we've known it, changed this week. If things are as they appear, it doesn't get impeachier than this. This time is different. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had been against impeachment, worried about not having an indisputable smoking gun to turn the tide of public opinion. Channeling Abe Lincoln, she said public opinion is everything. She was nervous about how a divisive impeachment might backfire in 2020, giving Trump and Republican representatives another four years at least. Plus, it's her job to count heads. Although a majority of House Democrats were ready to impeach, those who barely got elected in Republican districts were holding out and Pelosi wants to hang on to those seats. Here's why the Ukraine scandal is different, different than all the other jaw-dropping things we've witnessed in the past three years. This time, Nancy Pelosi and a lot of others in Congress realize they have no choice but to impeach. Subpoenas haven't worked. The courts haven't helped quickly enough. The investigations get stonewalled. If a president withholds foreign military aid to coerce a government into helping their campaign by investigating a political rival, that is a high crime and an impeachable abuse of power that compromised our national security. 
If a president subverts our national security for personal gain and then orders a cover-up threatening to prosecute a whistleblower who'd risked it all for their country, that is a high crime and an impeachable abuse of power. On Tuesday, Nancy Pelosi announced the start of formal impeachment hearings over the president's apparent attempted bribery of a foreign government official for personal political gain, using taxpayer money for the bribe, while subverting U.S. national security interests to the delight of Russia. Although Pelosi's top deputies, her committee chairs, had steadfastly stood by her opposition to impeachment, we saw that begin to crumble this week. Pelosi had spent much of the weekend on the phone with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, who later told reporters, I've been reluctant to go down the path of impeachment, but if the president's withholding military aid at the same time that he's trying to browbeat a foreign leader into providing dirt on his opponent during a presidential campaign, that may be the only remedy. As this week began, a dozen new names were added to the list of Democratic lawmakers favoring impeachment, including moderates based on that whistleblower complaint and what we've learned since. And then there were seven more freshman Democrats this time, each of whom had military or national security experience saying that impeachment is in order. Each of them has now put their own political careers on the line since each was narrowly elected in a red or swing district. Standing up for what they think is right might cost them their jobs. These seven lawmakers think the risk is worth it, considering what's at stake for the country. There are now more than 218 yes votes in the House for impeachment so far. Just barely a majority and one of the reasons for Pelosi's hesitancy. But it is a majority now. But once the Ukraine scandal had become more clear, Pelosi urgently polled the rest of the Democrats in Congress, asking them to take a stand then and there for or against impeachment. By then, more than 50 additional House members had stepped forward to say they now favor impeachment and then 30 others. After taking that poll and considering the threat to democracy, Pelosi decided to open the long-awaited impeachment inquiry, complete with public open hearings. It's no longer an investigation. It's a prosecution now. Trump has admitted he held up the money for Ukraine while asking Ukraine to investigate his political rival. He's also publicly accepted foreign money at the hotels that still profit him. He's also individual one in a campaign finance case that put his former personal lawyer in prison. It does not get impeachier than this. House Democrats had grown impatient and sometimes angry. Many were more than frustrated last week when former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski not only failed to cooperate in his congressional testimony, he openly mocked the lawmakers, talked over them, and plugged his new Senate campaign while Trump cheered him on from Air Force One. Some members of the Judiciary Committee wanted Lewandowski held in contempt on the spot, but House rules don't allow for finding contempt on the spot, as is allowed in a courtroom. A staffer tried to soothe the frustrated Democrats on the panel by emailing them, which is not to say we do not understand the strong impulse to punch this guy in the mouth. Still, Democrats felt weak and ineffectual, embarrassed and powerless and worried for their country. Frustration and anger among House Democrats were on the rise. More moderates wanted impeachment. There was more pressure from the left, and then there appeared to be more evidence to satisfy Pelosi's desire for a definitive smoking gun. It was that kind of smoking gun evidence that brought down Richard Nixon and the very important public opinion that followed. 
it was time for the Democrats to act whether they really wanted to or not. Impeachment will further inflame Trump's base, which appears to be a minority of voters. Not impeaching would let presidents, present and future, rule without the constitutional check and balance of Congress. This isn't about the election. This is about enforcing the law, being remembered on the right side of history, and about rescuing this gasping-for-air Democratic Republic. Even the Democratic lawmakers who've resisted impeachment see it now. Thanks to a courageous whistleblower, the tide in Congress has turned in one breathtaking week. And that brings us to the Republican lawmakers who stayed silent throughout the vast majority of Trump's outrageous words and deeds and who have, in many cases, defended him. And this time appeared to be no different. At first, as of Monday morning, only Utah Senator Mitt Romney had spoken on the ethics, saying if the president asked Ukraine's president to investigate his political rival, it would be troubling in the extreme, adding it's critical for the facts to come out. Romney was still at it yesterday, calling Trump's call to Ukraine deeply troubling. And Republican Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr is known to have serious issues with the way Trump's handled Ukraine. Other Republicans are beginning to speak up, and a secret unofficial vote among Senate Republicans has reportedly found 30 of them now in favor of impeaching Trump. Many Republicans were flabbergasted at the White House decision to release that summary of this already infamous phone call, and flabbergasted, too, when the White House accidentally emailed a set of talking points for defending the president to Democratic lawmakers as well as Republicans. Like out of Veep. There are other Republicans in the Senate who've decided to just leave and not oppose their fellow Republicans over what they've seen as an unwinnable fight to hold a corrupt president accountable. Michigan Republican Paul Mitchell is one of those. He wasn't planning on retiring, but he has since decided he must. It started with a Trump tweet on July 14th telling four U.S. Congresswomen who are not white to go back to their countries of origin, three of them born in the U.S., the third a U.S. citizen, of course. Congressman Mitchell got on the phone and asked other top House Republicans to make Trump stop saying this. He told them it was damaging to the party and to the country. Three days later, as he was about to go on CNN in prime time, they showed a clip from a Trump rally in which the red-hatted supporters were chanting in unison about Congresswoman Elon Omar, send her back. So Mitchell scribbled a quick note to an aide that read, how do I even respond to this on TV? Mitchell then took his concern directly to Vice President Mike Pence, Pence's chief of staff, and, quoting Mitchell, any human that has any influence in the White House. He tried to get them to let him have a quick face-to-face -face with Trump about this. It got him nowhere. So on July 24th, 10 days after that go-back tweet from Trump, Paul Mitchell, who expected to spend many more years in Congress, decided to hang it up. He retired in the summer of 2019, and he's not the only Republican to bail. At least 18 House Republicans said they're either retiring or resigning or running for another office or just not running for anything. At least some of them are leaving in disgust. Most of those cite family reasons for leaving. In the case of Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, who's called for impeachment and switched from Republican to Independent, even if it cost him re-election. Because of the retirements and the 2018 election defeats and the defection, Republicans have now lost 40% of the seats they held 
just two years ago. 40%. Truth is, they've been vanishing from the moment they first heard Trump say how he likes to grab women. 41 House Republicans have left national politics or declined re-election bids in the three years that Trump's been president. That's nearly double the number of Democrats who had bailed in Obama's first three years. On one hand, it's a purging of Republicans who oppose Trump. On the other, it's a purge of Republican votes in Congress. Republican insiders say this attrition will get worse. And in the midst of all of that, Republicans now faced with a high crime by the president may soon see that their political careers and the income that comes with those careers are in jeopardy. And they will turn against Trump on a dime, as they did with Nixon, to try to save those incomes and careers. For now, they continue to mostly lay low. For now. Trump, meanwhile, used an important appearance at the United Nations to talk not about climate change like the other leaders, but to again attack Joe Biden and the media picking at the scab of the whistleblower complaint. He told the other world leaders who were more interested in climate change and global pandemics that if Biden were a Republican, he'd, quote, be in the electric chair by now. Trump continued his attack during a meeting with the president of Poland and again with the prime minister of Singapore. In a perhaps related story, Facebook has taken down a pro-Trump propaganda page upon learning that page was being administered from, wait for it, Ukraine. The page I Love America had well over a million followers here in the U.S. The content of the website was the same content used in 2016 by Russia's cyber team cleverly named the Internet Research Agency. Salon.com's Bob Seske invites you to bring plenty of snack bowls as the news cycle in this country now serves up popcorn and a whole lot of nuts. Thank you, Buzz. Tuesday and Wednesday of this week were two of the most staggering, confounding, and purely exciting days in my 30 years covering politics. It's difficult to imagine another event short of an attack or mass shooting that comes close to the sequence of bombshells that transpired throughout the past 48 hours. The truly breathtaking reality of this news cycle, however, is it's only going to get crazier from here. Rewinding to the release of the summary document by the White House, the non-transcript transcript describing the blow-by-blow of the July 25 conversation between Donald Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. The first thing that came to mind when I read the initial pages was, this can't possibly be real. It read like satire, some clever a-hole on Twitter, screwing around with a fake Photoshop document, spoofing what we'd eventually see from the White House. But no, the document was real, and it was mind-blowing, once again confirming my theory that Trump always makes things worse for Trump. By now, you know the details. The document vindicates the reporting that began back in May with news about Rudy Giuliani's escapades with Ukraine, lobbying Kiev to reopen an investigation that could be damaging to the Biden family, and culminated more recently with news of a whistleblower emerging with damning information about Trump's overseas phone calls. We have Trump bringing up the Biden-Ukraine issue almost right away, and no, Contrary to the White House's talking points, Zelensky did not mention Biden first. Trump did. We also have a clear quid pro quo offered by Trump. Just after Zelensky mentions javelin missiles from the United States, Trump replies immediately with, quote, 
I would like you to do us a favor, though, and proceeds to ask, I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike, unquote, which is a Fox News driven conspiracy theory. Trump also mentions in this section that the Mueller investigation started with Ukraine. I have no idea what he means there other than perhaps another conspiracy theory. Not as widely reported, but nearly as important is the section in which Trump also asked Zelensky to investigate the existence of, quote, the Democratic National Committee computer server that U.S. officials say was hacked by Russian intelligence, unquote. This right here is a clear indication that Trump is desperate to flummox not just the Biden campaign, but the Democratic Party as a whole. And we haven't even seen anything from the whistleblower's complaint yet, which could feature numerous similar calls with other world leaders. Furthermore, by the time you hear this, it might already be Thursday afternoon when the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, testifies in public before the House Intelligence Committee. It's worth noting that McGuire apparently threatened to resign if the White House continued to harass him about stonewalling Congress. So... His testimony is sure to blow the roof off the place. One of my biggest questions, though, is this. Is Trump being screwed by his own team, or is he really this suicidal? I'm still baffled that Trump allowed this document to go public, knowing he's hidden other damaging pages like his tax returns and financial records from voters and the press, going so far as to sue Congress to keep them secret. If he actually read the document, it's possible his judgment has become so addled that he can't see right from wrong, or maybe he's never been able to make such a binary choice, and he simply doesn't know the difference. There's simply no way the content of the document helps him in any way. It's also worthy of speculation as to whether Trump actually read the document at all, and instead has based his knowledge of the call on his very, very tremendous brain. If so, his memory is failing or he believes his own bullshit that it was a quote-unquote beautiful call. But there's also part of me that wonders if his staff lied to him about the call, telling him it's a beautiful thing when it's really the smoking gun in his criminal conspiracy to undermine the election by way of foreign meddling. There's a chance, a small chance, that he just doesn't know and a movement is underway inside the White House to shuffle the president out the door by sabotaging his presidency from within. Sounds insane, I know, but it's been an insane day full of twists none of us could have predicted just 48 hours ago. Whatever the justification for the release of the document, Trump will be impeached by the House of Representatives on a timeline of Nancy Pelosi's choosing. From there, the matter goes to the U.S. Senate for the trial of the president. The trial will expose all of the president's worst and most harrowing misdeeds back to back like a highlight reel, complete with witnesses, documentary evidence, and broadcast live while the defendant runs for re-election. Trump might be acquitted thanks to his Republican enablers and Mitch McConnell. It's also possible Trump will resign before all of his skeletons are trotted out by the House Democrats on national television, including his tax returns and much more. Get your popcorn ready. The rest of 2019 and all of 2020 are going to be nuts. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob, for everything you do.
Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Trump continues to hide his tax returns from voters and fellow taxpayers, unlike any other president of the past 40-some years. Those who take seriously their oaths to uphold the law are still trying to get those returns. Now, the New York County District Attorney has subpoenaed eight years of Trump's tax returns from his longtime accounting firm, Mazars. The DA, like others, is investigating the campaign finance violation that made Trump individual one in the indictment that ultimately put his lawyer, Michael Cohen, behind bars. That violation centers around the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, her silence being a valuable asset to the 2016 Trump campaign. The accountants at Mazar say they will comply with all subpoenas as soon as the court fight is over. The Trump administration has gone to court to try to block the subpoena for those eight tax returns and to sue the New York County DA, accusing him of harassment. The court filing from Trump's lawyers is both telling and frightening. It argues that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime and, remarkably, that a sitting president cannot be even investigated. Think about the Ukraine scandal for a moment. In truth, the Justice Department rules say you can investigate a president, just not indict them. And Trump's lawyers apparently failed to notice that the Mueller probe was a criminal investigation, so it's already been done, one of more than two dozen criminal investigations. Trump is also suing California, where a new law keeps off the ballot any candidate who's not released their tax returns. New York state lawmakers voted to let their tax officials share with Congress the tax returns they have on file Trump's suing them over that as well. And he's suing Congress over its subpoenas to get hold of records from the Trump organization that outline its involvement in the hush money payments. But this New York District Attorney probe is different. It's not a lawsuit. It's a criminal grand jury investigation. And no one convicted in this case can be pardoned. To recap, in addition to everything you've heard here so far today, Trump has given classified information, including intelligence-gathering methods to Russian officials in the Oval Office. He's undermined our intelligence officials in front of a hostile foreign leader in Helsinki by saying he believed Putin over our intelligence experts. He's killed or wounded all four of the U.S. responses to Russia's taking of Crimea after accepting help from Russia in the 2016 campaign. He hired a national security advisor he knew was secretly working as a foreign lobbyist. He's praised most of the world's dictators and alienated most of the leaders of our allied countries. He's cozied up to a Saudi prince who had a Washington Post journalist beaten to death and hacked into pieces. He slammed a dead war hero and a Gold Star family and women, including a former first lady, while praising the very fine white supremacists after their deadly march through Charlottesville. He's repeatedly been accused of sexual assault and misconduct. He's mocked the disabled. He's insulted judges and his own appointees. He's called journalists the enemy of the people, a phrase associated with a couple of the world's now-dead dictators. He's called Mexicans rapists, denigrated Muslims, and told native-born members of the United States Congress to go back to the countries from which they came. He's lied about nearly everything, including the weather and his business in Russia. He's promoted false conspiracy theories and retweeted false and hateful material from Russian bots. 
He's paid hush money to a porn star. He's ripped babies from their mother's arms and put them in cages. He's taken from the poor through budget cuts and given to the rich through a bill disguised as tax reform. He doesn't read. He watches TV and plays golf at his resorts at unprecedented taxpayer expense. And he's called America a hellhole no better than Russia. And he's teased that he might run for an unconstitutional third term in 2024. Not all, of course, but many of these things qualify as articles of impeachment. With the Ukraine scandal, however, many possible articles of impeachment may ultimately be rejected by House lawmakers in favor of the far more explosive crimes outlined in that whistleblower report on Ukraine. That evidence is so explosive and so damning, Democrats are ready to focus on that scandal and to speed up the impeachment process even more. The Ukraine scandal that directly involves the president has moved to the top of the impeachment list. As a general rule, the more Trump speaks or tweets, the more he lies. And he's talking more these days. Having rid himself of those known as the adults in the room, Trump feels freer to say what's on his mind, such as it is. He may also be a bit panicked over his bad poll numbers and the increasing calls for impeachment. During his three years in office, CNN reports that Trump has talked and tweeted more each year and that this year is a doozy. Trump has always tweeted a lot, but this year he's tweeting 91% more than he did in his first year in office. He's up to 83 tweets a week now. It's practically frantic. The length of his daily speeches has grown from under an hour to about 90 minutes. There's more chopper talk and more camera time. Trump's spending about a half hour more each week talking with reporters than he had last year and one and a half times as long as he did in 2017. And CNN found there is a correlation between how much Trump has to say and how much of it is simply not true. In the past week, Trump claimed he'd never met the late journalism pioneer Cokie Roberts when in fact he had in a TV interview at Trump Tower. He blamed Iran for the attack on a Saudi oil field, but last Monday he said he didn't say that. He said twice in public that he would meet with Iran's leaders with no preconditions. Last Sunday he said he didn't say that. After claiming that winning trade wars is easy, last month he said he never said that. He claimed to be considering background checks for gun buyers and later said he never said that. Last year, he promised North Korean denuclearization, quote, very quickly, very, very quickly, absolutely. This year, when confronted with that, he replied, I never said speed. In 2016, he promised veterans a choice of doctors, later telling his red hats, I never said we were going to get choice. He promised Mexico would pay for his wall, later saying, I never said this, and I never meant they were going to write out a check. The list goes on, but lately it has gotten worse. And then there was that time in a court deposition that Trump was confronted by his own claim that he has, quote, one of the best memories in the world. He told his deposers, I don't remember saying that. Only 9% of us believe everything the Trump White House has to say. More than 7 in 10 of us trust none or almost nothing we hear from this White House. 6 in 10 voting age Americans in this CNN poll say Trump does not deserve a second term. His approval rating has never made it to 50%. Polls from Gallup and Quinnipiac and Pew Research show Americans opposed to Trump's positions on the economy, the environment, immigration, trade, and foreign policy. Have we missed anything? His determination to play to his base and not to all Americans has a fatal flaw. 
His base is now a loud and angry and shrinking minority. It was the day after Robert Mueller's not-so-bombshell congressional testimony that Trump picked up the phone to call Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Feeling vindicated of collusion and obstruction, even though he wasn't, helped make the president feel invincible. At the very least, he'd gotten away with it, no consequences. So he kept going with his instinct for foreign help with a campaign. In not so many words, he was pressing Zelensky to dig up dirt on Biden or the $400 million from U.S. taxpayers is off. A governance expert at the Brookings Institution tells the Washington Post he appears to be daring the political system to stop him, and if it doesn't, he'll go further. Well, that system has started moving now. After three years of dodging the Mueller investigation, Trump was again inviting, nay, extorting foreign help. It's as if he hadn't learned his lesson. And that's because, until now, no lesson had ever been delivered. Will this time be different? It appears it will. It wasn't just that one phone call. Everything in this case does not hinge on that one call. The whistleblower who alerted the intelligence community's inspector general told of multiple acts by the president, all reported together two and a half weeks after the call. It's that promise made to a foreign leader that makes the phone call stand out, but that's only one part of the whistleblower's filed-through-proper-channels complaint. The whistleblower even carefully used the phrase urgent concern in their complaint, since urgent concern is what legally requires the inspector general to pass it along to the members of Congress who oversee the intelligence community. The inspector general agreed, yes, he said, it is of urgent concern. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to Congress. As rare as intelligence whistleblowing is, this time is quite different. This time, the acting director of national intelligence stepped in, ruling the complaint was not of urgent concern and shall therefore not be turned over to Congress. This is where I repeat, this has never happened before. No intelligence director had ever refused to turn a whistleblower complaint over to Congress. And this time is also different because we now know the White House asked William Barr's Justice Department to get involved in this dispute. And that is a clear and direct violation of the law. This time, it's a crime you can hold in your hand, one you don't have to know the law to understand. You know in your gut it's a crime. And that makes impeachment infinitely easier now than it would have been without this shocking bribery allegation. So this time really is different. It does appear the whistleblower is someone in Trump's inner circle, or at least close enough to him to hear the conversation with President Zelensky. And the Washington Post found Trump insiders who corroborate the whistleblower's complaint, albeit anonymously. The Post found at least two people familiar with that phone call, and they confirm Trump pressured Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. Congress can now either try to investigate and get tied up in another court battle with the White House, or it can go forward with its impeachment hearings. Since investigations and litigation have not borne fruit, it's beginning to look a lot like impeachment. Where we left the Senate majority leader, he didn't like being called Moscow Mitch. It turns out he also does not like being called Massacre Mitch or Murder Turtle or any of the other cruel invectives hurled his way of late. He said he could laugh at being called the Grim Reaper for killing almost every bill passed by the Democrat-controlled House, but Moscow Mitch, he said, is, quote, over-the-top, modern-day McCarthyism, he called it. He'd gotten the Massacre Mitch title for opposing gun control in a summer scarred by more than two dozen deadly mass shootings. 
He got the Moscow Mitch title for, well, a number of things, actually, but most recently for blocking every worthwhile bill to block election interference by Russia and others. Those other things refer to his leading the effort to help a Russian aluminum oligarch get by the sanctions placed on Russia for its election meddling. And then Mitch got for his state a shiny new, wait for it, Russian aluminum factory. McConnell had also joined with Trump in calling the Russia investigation a witch hunt. He's backing Trump on the Ukraine scandal as well. It was McConnell who, in the 2016 campaign, refused to sign off on a bipartisan response to the Russian interference that was clearly underway. Add it all up, and you get the nickname Moscow Mitch. The moniker did not go away, and it's left him virtually tied with his Democratic challenger for his seat in 2020 in a district that had been easily his for 36 years. There appears to be nothing McConnell covets more than power, and he feels it slipping away. His job as senator, his job as Senate Majority Leader, hangs by a statistical thread. So McConnell had an inspiration. Suddenly, after a year of resistance, he would support spending $250 million to help all of our states keep Russia out of their election computers in 2020. He even took credit for writing the amendment. Under attack by Democrats, a conservative group, and bipartisan groups, McConnell had folded under pressure. It's not the first time it's happened. As good as he is at what he does, and McConnell is among the best, He's been pressured into switching his positions on multiple issues. Democratic pressure forced McConnell to okay disaster funding for Puerto Rico. Pressure from comedian John Stewart forced him to allow health care money for 9-11 first responders. Each time McConnell flipped, it happened under pressure from Democrats, and there's a lesson in that for the future. The nickname Massacre Mitch could come in handy for pressuring him into supporting gun control or other issues. McConnell's wife, meanwhile, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, is now under investigation by the House Oversight Committee regarding troubling questions about whether she abused her authority to profit herself and her family. An American soldier stationed at Fort Riley in Kansas has been arrested by the FBI for allegedly plotting to bomb a major news network, presumably CNN, and citing Democratic presidential hopeful Beto O'Rourke and Antifa protesters as possible targets for murder. The FBI says Jarrett William Smith joined the army to fight in Ukraine, where he also wanted to fight a violent military group. Agents say Smith wanted pipe bombs and a truck bomb chemically timed to detonate a half hour after being abandoned. Oh yeah, Smith wrote in a Facebook chat, I've got knowledge of IEDs for days. We can make cell phone IEDs in the style of the Afghans. I can teach you that, end quote. The FBI says Smith did, in fact, provide those bomb-making instructions and that he had an accomplice who is now living in Ukraine. We learned this week that the Trump administration is looking to take an additional $5 billion from the defense budget to get four or 500 miles of Trump's border wall built by Election Day 2020. He's already taken $3.6 billion from the 51 military construction projects, many of which would serve military families and would have held off Russian aggression in Europe. Documents obtained by the Washington Post show that the wall will now cost over $36 million per mile, not counting the cost of buying up the land for 200 continuous miles using the government's eminent domain powers. The total cost over two years, well over $7 billion. 
which is what he said it would cost to build 700 miles of wall. Now that's the estimated cost of 500 miles. Defense Department budget requests have made it clear unless it gets back that snatched money or unless that money gets replaced, the consequences will be dire for the military. Housing for our soldiers and schools for their kids are unsafe and in desperate need of repair. Some of the risks involve nuclear and other hazardous materials as well as fire hazards. And this week, we learned that construction of Trump's wall would destroy nearly two dozen archaeological sites. It could happen within the next few months, just in Arizona's Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument and National Park. This objection to Trump's wall comes not from private landowners and churches who'd be bulldozed out of the way, and it comes not from environmental groups. This time, the objection comes from the government itself, the National Park Service, in a 123-page report. The Trump administration is ahead of this, waiving the Archaeological Resources Protection Act and the National Historic Preservation Act and, for good measure, the Endangered Species Act. The Border Patrol's all-terrain vehicles have already torn up some of the archaeological sites that will be graded soon by heavy equipment to build his wall. Construction crews will need water to mix the concrete for the wall's foundation, which they can find in underground springs there, which could dry up with that kind of intense industrial use. 52,000 undocumented migrants remain in U.S. custody and facilities across the country, most of those facilities privately owned, prisons for profit. This month, California lawmakers decided to go another way, banning private prisons in the Golden State. The bill shuts down by 2028 four private facilities used to house undocumented immigrants, about 18,000 of them. And it sets up yet another fight between California and Trump. One of the oldest names in guns is Colt. The company's been around since the 1830s. In modern times, Colt has made and sold a lot of AR-15s, the weapon most often used in our mass gun slaughters. Colt now says there are so many AR-15s out there, there's no profit in making any more of them, for now. Also, Walmart had stopped selling them, as had other stores, including sporting goods chains. Colt says consumer feedback could compel it to reverse its no more AR-15s decision. Donald Trump may have already lost Iowa over the devastating effect his trade war with China has had on Iowa's corn farmers. Despite the $30 billion in farm bailouts Trump's pumped into Iowa, the Iowa Corn Growers Association expresses its feelings in two words, fed up. Elizabeth Warren, meanwhile, has risen to a virtual tie in Iowa with national frontrunner Joe Biden. She has a plan to pay farmers to capture carbon through conservation efforts. Iowa's corn farmers are listening to and liking what they hear from Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg as well. They've heard less from Joe Biden, who at last check trailed Warren in the Iowa caucuses by two points. Warren also now leads nationally in crowd size at her rallies, something that's always been important to the current president. Crowd size, he taught us, is momentum and electability. Clinton supporters were wrong to ignore that in 2016 when Trump and Sanders were the big draws. For Elizabeth Warren's rally last week in New York's Washington Square, more than 20,000 people showed up. That's more than double the number New York's Park Service had prepared for. The crowd stayed for hours, many of them waiting for selfies with Warren after her speech. When it was noted by a reporter that Warren had stood for hours to take selfies, she replied, 
So did the last guy in line. The Greta Glare, introducing kosher shrimp and the golden toilet in the final segment after this. Okay, here's the count. As I've said before, the average featured article in Rolling Stone magazine, 7,500 words long. The number of words in today's report, 10,481 or so. The words come from me, but the news comes from a variety of reliable sources that charge for their services, rightfully. There are also computer expenses, software, server fees, websites, and high-speed internet, and the care and feeding of professional broadcast quality equipment to make the show listenable. This newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, going through that page and bookmarking it still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support independent news. Is it legal to fire someone for being gay? The United States Supreme Court will let us know. Despite all its favorable rulings on gay rights over the past 20 years, including gay marriage, it is still legal in more than half the country to fire a person for being gay. Now, the Supreme Court will ponder whether LGBTQ citizens are entitled to protection from workplace discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the justice who wrote most of those favorable opinions, Anthony Kennedy, is gone, having retired last year. The court convenes next week on Monday, October 7th, the first Monday in October. In this fall's session, the justices will review the case of Gerald Bostock, who worked with neglected and abused children until he was fired after he joined a gay softball team. He was fired for, quote, conduct unbecoming to a county employee. The judges will also consider the case of Don Zarda, who was fired from his job as a skydiving instructor. A customer had explained her concern about such intimate contact diving in tandem with Zarda, who assured her, I'm 100% gay. That got back to his boss, and he was out. The Supreme Court will decide if that job discrimination is in violation of federal law. Stay tuned. 50,000 GM auto workers remain on strike. They feel betrayed the company got bailed out during the recession, while they did not. They feel betrayed that GM made $25 billion in profits over the past two years and that their CEO made nearly 300 times as much money as they did on average. We gave back to the company, says one union leader. Now they have made a boatload of cash. It's time to share the wealth. It didn't help that GM had just dumped the cost of employee health insurance onto the union, which the union describes as pouring gas on the fire. The strike is also about jobs. A GM metals plant in Flint once employed nearly 5,000 workers. Now it's about 600, thanks to outsourcing, automation, and other factors. GM CEO Mary Barra makes over $22 million per year. One striker says, we'll be out there for as long as it's necessary. A 16-year-old girl from Sweden who has Asperger's syndrome stood quietly with her arms folded, glaring at the American president as he arrived at the U.N. unexpectedly for a climate conference. Trump, after all, has reversed more than 80 moves by previous presidents to protect our air, water, and the planet itself to make way for the burning of more fossil fuels. This past week, he rolled back clean water rules on behalf of the coal industry, and his administration announced it would revoke California's authority to set its own clean air rules on behalf of the oil industry. 
California and other states are fighting this with lawsuits. Two weeks ago, he was complaining that energy-saving light bulbs made him look orange. Greta Thunberg's glare at Trump came after her historic one-minute speech in which she instructed world leaders to listen to scientists and to take real action on climate change. How dare you, she told the UN Climate Conference. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. But she said it wasn't about her. People are suffering. People are dying, she continued. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. If you fail us, she later told the conference, we will never forgive you. Inspired by Greta, millions of young people and other climate activists staged a worldwide strike this past Friday. What had started as just a school strike last year became an everyone's welcome strike this year. There were demonstrations in 185 countries, but the message was the same everywhere. Do something about climate change. There were 500 demonstrations just inside Germany. In Washington, D.C., it created traffic gridlock, part of the biggest climate protest in history. Greta Thunberg led the biggest U.S. protest in New York. Do you think they hear us? Greta asked the crowd. No, they yelled back. We'll make them hear us, she said. Change is coming, said Greta, whether they like it or not. A Washington Post poll finds that most American teens are frightened by climate change and that one in four are taking action. But to quote a 16-year-old girl from Maryland, fear is a commodity we don't have time for. A CBS News poll finds that two-thirds of Americans believe climate change is a crisis, or at least a serious problem that demands immediate attention. The U.N. Secretary General this week called it an emergency, and he said he's counting on public pressure on governments to take much stronger action. The U.N. Panel on Climate Change also came out with a new report this week outlining the man-made changes the planet is experiencing from our mountaintops to the depths of our seas. 104 scientists and officials from three dozen countries wrote this report and predicted a sea level rise of four inches and the mass migration of sea creatures impacting our food supply, among other things. That four inches is on top of the six-inch rise we saw in the 20th century, but now it's rising twice as fast. What were once considered 100-year floods, they predict, will occur every year now in coastal towns. The report says the world's leaders need to triple their goals for cutting carbon emissions, the kind produced by the fossil fuel industry Trump seeks to protect. A cataclysmic rise in the Earth's temperature is now forecast at just 81 years from now. Tick-tock. The news has been good for neither the birds nor the bees. Beekeepers are now suing the Trump EPA over its decision not to ban a pesticide the bee experts are convinced is killing butterflies and bees. Bees, as explained here before, pollinate about a third of the world's food supply, including almonds, apples, avocados, and grapes. The mite infestations are challenging enough, and the climate change, of course, but the pesticide along with them is just too much, say the beekeepers. We also learned this week we've lost nearly 3 billion North American birds over the past 50 years from hundreds of species. Greta Thunberg was right about mass extinction. That's a third of our birds. Finches are fewer and sparrows are sparse. Meadowlarks, the official bird of Kansas and five other states, is missing from the meadows. Eliminating habitat by turning grasslands into farmland gets a lot of the blame. 
along with the insecticides that kill the insects that kill the crops. Trouble is the birds eat those insects. So the insecticides also kill the swallows, thrushes, and warblers. The disappearance of birds is a warning about the direction of the planet. Birds are the canaries in this coal mine, and they're telling us to back away. Even though it's filed for bankruptcy, Purdue Pharma, accused of fueling the country's opioid crisis, is asking a judge to let it pay $34 million in bonuses to employees who met or exceeded their sales goals. That came after the New York Attorney General's office revealed the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma had made about $1 billion in wire transfers through Swiss bank accounts. The company is expected to be dissolved under the weight of the lawsuits it still faces. Ten people are now dead from lung injuries and from vaping, and well over 500 have this lung illness. The CEO of Juul has just stepped down in the controversy, and Juul now says it's canceled most of its advertising. But it's also hired a new CEO, this one, a veteran of the big tobacco industry. Black market marijuana liquids for vaping are still the most likely cause of the illness, but that's not been officially determined, so health officials are urging people not to vape anything and not to go back to cigarettes. In an American lifetime, tap water causes 100,000 cases of cancer, according to the Environmental Working Group, which blames that cancer on arsenic and other toxins in our tap water. Scientists in California have just published a study saying they may have found a protein to cure the otherwise incurable common cold. They say they still have a long way to go, considering there are some 160 rhinoviruses. Kosher shrimp may be in our future, as scientists at Tyson Foods have created what they believe is a pretty darn good plant-based protein that tastes and chews like shrimp. Real shrimp are scavengers, considered unclean and therefore avoided by many Jews and Muslims. But they could eat the Tyson's fake shrimp with all the flavor and none of the guilt. It could also mean less overfishing of shrimp. There are already more than 100 plant-based meat products in the U.S. that are certified kosher. Impossible Foods ground beef showed up in grocery stores along the East Coast this week. The jury's still out on what's better for the planet. In a Rhode Island emergency room this week, a 25-year-old woman presented with weakness, dizziness, and shortness of breath. Also, her skin, and especially her fingernails, had turned blue, and her blood had turned a very dark navy blue. Turns out she had acquired methemoglobinemia. It's rare, but potentially deadly. Her blood was not getting enough oxygen, not even close to enough oxygen. No wonder she was dizzy. It happened when a medication changed the shape of her hemoglobin molecules to the point that her blood stopped providing oxygen to the surrounding tissues. No wonder she was blue. It turns out she had used an over-the-counter benzocaine ointment for her toothache, a product that's affected some 400 Americans the same way over the past 40 years. So it is rare. One doc said he could work another 20 years and never see another case like this one. Some doctors are familiar with a phenomenon known as broken heart syndrome. It's when a huge amount of stress, particularly the shocking loss of a loved one, can prompt the left ventricle of the heart to expand and balloon outward, creating pressure in the chest that feels like a heart attack. It happened recently at a wedding in Israel. It was a joyous occasion. Nothing shocking or tragic had occurred. 
unless you count the patient having accidentally eaten a large bite of wasabi that she had mistaken for avocado. It is the first known case of broken heart syndrome caused by wasabi. Johns Hopkins has just launched the Center of Psychedelic and Consciousness Research to study medical uses for LSD and psilocybin, magic mushrooms. They are found to be effective in some cases of chronic depression, addiction, and anorexia. Three and a half million in private funding makes the new research possible. Patricia Spotted Crow of Oklahoma is back in jail even after spending 12 years behind bars for possession of $31 worth of marijuana on a first offense. Now, she had been rearrested for not paying the court costs from 12 years ago, and she had no money so she could go back to being a mom. It was a newspaper, the Tulsa World, that brought her story to the public, which then kindly stepped up with the needed cash. So this is a story of kindness and a story of an unequal criminal justice system. In Los Angeles, actress Felicity Huffman was sentenced to two weeks behind bars for the felony of paying tens of thousands of dollars to cheat her daughter's way into college. Opera singer Placido Domingo has left New York's Metropolitan Opera for good after other singers quit, refusing to work with a man accused of sexual misconduct with multiple women. Domingo gave barely 24 hours' notice before the opening of Macbeth, indicating he may be considering retirement. Shane Gillis was supposed to have joined the cast of Saturday Night Live this fall, but he's been fired just as the new season begins. Gillis is a stand-up comic who's done some recent podcasts in which he used racist, misogynist, and homophobic language. He has apologized, sort of. Since the firing, SNL has been accused by other comedians of making its decision for the sake of political correctness. The new season begins this Saturday night. There have been four notable passings since we last met, three in the music world. Cars frontman Rick Ocasek, found dead in his apartment at age 75 from heart disease. Eddie Money, the voice behind Take Me Home Tonight and Two Tickets to Paradise, died at age 70. He'd battled drug and alcohol abuse, heart surgery, pneumonia, and finally, esophageal cancer. And Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter died Monday night at age 78. He also wrote for Bob Dylan, Elvis Costello, and Bruce Hornsby. Hunter wrote the words for Truckin' and Casey Jones, among others. And a loss as well for journalism. Cokie Roberts from ABC and NPR was destined to cover Washington since her father was well-known New Orleans Congressman Hale Boggs and her mother, Lindy Boggs, filled that Senate seat after Cokie's father died in a plane crash. Cokie Roberts passed this past week at the age of 76. Billy Porter, the first openly gay man ever to win an Emmy for Best Dramatic Actor, did so Sunday night. And did so in a telecast that attracted one-third fewer viewers than last year's show. And the ratings had already been falling. Downton Abbey is the top movie this week with a $31 million take. Brad Pitt in space with Ad Astra is in a lower orbit at just over $19 million. Rambo Last Blood is third at $19 million. And It Chapter 2 is fourth with just over $17 million. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click furiously on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. 3,000 people from places as far away as Tampa, Florida, turned up in the Nevada desert Friday to storm Area 51, the secret government installation believed to be a hotbed for aliens from other planets. 
They never really planned to storm a fenced government facility with its beefed-up security. It was all just a joke, said the organizer. We just wanted to meet other people like us, said one of those who came. People like us, as it turns out, included many in alien costumes. Some of the residents of the nearby town of 40 people pounded no trespassing and go-away signs in their yards. In the heartland, a young Lincoln, Nebraska woman has been charged with negligent burning after she'd used a butane torch to burn her ex-boyfriend's love letters and inadvertently set her apartment on fire. No one was injured, but the fire did $4,000 damage. Police in Burlington, Massachusetts, found themselves working as Amazon delivery drivers after responding to the report of a large stash of undelivered Amazon packages in a local graveyard. They are now investigating who put them there. Police in Britain, meanwhile, are in search of a million-dollar, 18-carat gold toilet taken from Blenheim Palace, the birthplace of Winston Churchill. The toilet was created by an Italian artist who called his sculpture America to note our obsession with luxury and consumerism. It was once a usable display in the fifth-floor public restroom of the Guggenheim Museum in New York. People actually stood in line to use it, and janitors cleaned it every 15 minutes. In 2017, the museum offered it to Trump, knowing his love for all things golden, instead of the painting he had requested from them, Van Gogh's Landscape with Snow. They weren't giving up that. Trump rejected the toilet for the insult that it was. The toilet has stayed since at Blenheim Palace, available for use by visitors there at $33 for three minutes. The toilet had been a usable display in Blenheim Palace for just two days, before multiple thieves removed it from the plumbing, leaving the floors flooded with water. The toilet has not been recovered, but a 66-year-old man has been arrested. In Kansas City, they have found a cannonball that was lost sometime during the Civil War. It fell out of a treetop as a city worker was removing a dead tree in front of what was once a Civil War hospital. There's a pigeon poop problem at the Chicago Transit Authority's Irving Park Blue Line station. Democratic State Representative Jamie Andrade was there to talk about it with a reporter from CBS-owned WBBM-TV. The representative's suggestion was to install power-washing hoses to keep the mess cleared. The birds must not like that idea. As Andrade was talking to the reporter, the pigeons dropped poop on his head. At the Tiger truck stop off I-10 near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Casper the Camel did not like it when a woman visiting his petting zoo decided to crawl inside his enclosure to retrieve her deaf dog who had already hopped inside. The camel panicked at his two surprise visitors and sat down, resting his 600-pound frame on top of the woman. Apparently no one was seriously injured, but it took police some time to sort out all the wacky details. Animal rights groups who've wanted the roadside zoo closed for years say the camel did nothing wrong. They say the human did. The woman, of course, wanted out from under the beast, so she bit the camel in the place that was closest to her teeth. She bit the camel's testicles. In St. Clair County, Michigan, a high school principal's lost in court his bid to get back his job he was fired after giving a female security guard at the school a wooden sculpture of a penis that was then later stolen by a student. The ex-principal says the gift was an inside joke and did not upset the security guard. 
at a beach town in Florida. A man and woman were stopped for drunken bicycling after an officer spotted them nearly getting hit by a car. While the couple was in the back of the officer's car, he noticed they'd started having sex right there in the back seat of his cruiser. When the officer ordered them to stop, the man jumped out of the car and fled on foot without his clothes. And finally, Gordon Ormond has the biggest, widest smile in the mugshot taken this past week after he'd been arrested for driving under the influence. It was the Florida man's fifth DUI arrest, Pasco County Sheriff's deputies pulling him over after he'd broken a number of traffic laws, including running a red light at 15 miles an hour. The officers were not able to pull him over, though, until after he had led them on a chase at speeds of up to 35 miles per hour. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.